Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 2. 3. He left early. Lucas seemed to regard his departure as the act of a traitor, but he insisted on leaving. And in spite of Lucas's great social success, he inwardly condescended to Lucas. Lucas was not a serious man and could not comprehend seriousness. George went because he had to go, because the power of an idea drove him forth. He had no intention of sleeping. He walked automatically through dark London, and his eyes, turned within, saw nothing of the city. He did not walk quickly. He was too preoccupied to walk quickly. Yet in his brain he was hurrying. He had not a moment to lose. The girl was immensely far off. His haste was as absurd and as fine as that of a man who, starting to cross Europe on foot, must needs run in order to get out of Calais and be fairly on his way. At Russell Square he wondered whether he would be able to get into the office. However, there was still a light in the basement and he rang the house bell. The housekeeper's daughter, a girl who played at being parlour-maid in the afternoons and brought bad tea and thick bread and butter to the privileged in the office, opened the front door with bridling exclamations of astonishment. She had her best frock on. Her hair was in curling pins. She smelt delicately of beer. The excitement of the Sunday League excursion and of the evening's dalliance had not quite cooled in this respectable and experienced young creature of central London. She was very feminine and provocative and unparlour-maidish, standing there in the hall, and George passed by her as callously as though she had been a real parlour-maid on duty. She had to fly to her mother for the key of the office. Taking the key from the breathless, ardent little thing, he said that he would see to the front door being properly shut when he went out. That was all. Her legitimate curiosity about his visit had to go to bed hungry. In the office, he switched on the lights in Haim's cubicle, in the pupil's room and in the principal's room. He enjoyed the illumination and the solitude. He took deep breaths. He walked about. After rummaging for the sketches and the printed site-plan of the town hall projected by the northern city, he discovered them under John Orgreave's desk. He moved them to Mr Enright's desk, which was the best one, and he bent over them rapturously. Yes, the idea of entering for the competition himself was a magnificent idea. Strange that it should have occurred not to him but to Lois. A disconcerting girl, Lois. She'd said that he looked twenty-five. He liked that. Why should he not enter for the competition himself? He would enter for it. The decision was made, as usual, without consulting anybody. Instinct was his sole guide. Failure in the final examination was beside the point. Moreover, though he had sworn never to sit again, he could easily sit again in December. He could pass the exam on his head. He might win the competition. To be even in the selected first six or ten would rank as a glorious achievement. But why should he not win outright? He was lucky, always had been lucky. It was essential that he should win outright. It was essential that he should create vast and grandiose structures, that he should have both artistic fame and worldly success. He could not wait long for success. He required luxury. He required a position enabling him to meet anybody and everybody on equal terms and to fulfil all his desires. He would not admit that he was too young for the enterprise. He was not too young. He refused to be too young, and indeed he felt that he had had that very night become adult, and that a new impulse, reducing all previous impulses to unimportance, had inspired his life. 
he owed the impulse to the baffling Lois. Marguerite would never have given him such an impulse. Marguerite had no ambition either for herself or for him. She was profoundly the wrong girl for him. He admitted his error candidly, with the eagerness of youth. He had no shame about the blunder. And the girl's environment was wrong for him also. What had he to do with Chelsea? Chelsea was a parish. It was not the world. He'd been gravely disappointed in Chelsea. Marguerite had no shiver of romance. She was homely, and she was content with her sphere. And she was not elegant. She had no kind of spartness. Who would look twice at her? And she was unjust. She was unfair. She had lacerated his highly sensitive pride. She had dealt his conceit a frightful wound. He would not think of it. And in fact, he could ignore the wound in the exquisite activity of creating town halls for mighty municipalities. He drew plans with passion and with fury. He had scores of alternative schemes. He was a god fashioning worlds. Having drawn plans, he drew elevations and perspectives. He rushed to the files, rushed because he was in haste to reach the goal, and studied afresh the schedules of accommodation for other municipal buildings that had been competed for in the past. Much as he hated detail, he stooped rather humbly to detail that night, and contended with it in all honesty. He worked for hours before he thought of lighting a cigarette. It was something uncanny beyond the large windows that first gently and perceptibly began to draw away his mind from the profusion of town halls on the desk, and so indirectly reminded him of the existence of cigarettes. When he lighted a cigarette, he stretched himself and glanced at the dark windows of which the blinds had not been pulled down. He understood then what was the matter. Dawn was the matter. The windows were no longer quite dark. He looked out. A faint pallor in the sky and some stars sickening therein, and underneath the silent square with its patient trees and indefatigable lamps. The cigarette tasted bad in his mouth, but he would not give it up. He yawned heavily. The melancholy of the square, awaiting without hope the slow, hard dawn, overcame him suddenly. Marguerite was a beautiful girl. Her nose was marvellous. He could never forget it. He could never forget her gesture as she intervened between him and her father in the basement at Alexandra Grove. They had painted lampshades together. She was angelically kind. She could not be ruffled. She would never criticise, never grasp, never exhibit selfishness. She was a unique combination of the serious and the sensuous. He felt the passionate, ecstatic clinging of her arm as they walked under the interminable chain of lampposts on Chelsea Embankment. Magical hours. And how she could absorb herself in her work. And what a damn shame it was that rascally employers should have cut down her prices. It was intolerable. It would not bear thinking about. He dropped the cigarette and stamped on it angrily. Then he returned to the desk and put his head in his hands and shut his eyes. He awakened with a start of misgiving. He was alone in the huge house, for the basement was under the house and somehow did not count. Something was astir in the house. He could hear it through the doors ajar. His flesh crept. It was exactly like the flap of a washing cloth on the stone stairs. It stopped. It came nearer. He thought inevitably of the dead Mrs. Hame, once charwoman and step-cleaner. In an instant he believed fully in all that he had ever heard about ghosts and spirit manifestations. An icy wave passed down his spine. He felt that if the phantom of Mrs. Hayne was approaching him, he simply could not bear to meet it. The ordeal would kill him. 
Then he decided that the sounds were not those of a washing cloth, but of slippered feet. Odd that he should have been so deluded. Somebody was coming down the long stairs from the upper stories, uninhabited at night. Burglars? He was still very perturbed, but differently perturbed. He could not move a muscle. The suspense as the footsteps hesitated at the cubicle was awful. George stood up straight and called out in a rough voice, louder than he expected it to be. Who's there? Mr. Enright appeared. He was wearing beautiful blue pyjamas and a plum-coloured silk dressing gown and doeskin slippers. His hair was extremely deranged. He blinked rapidly, and his lined face seemed very old. Well, I like this, I like this, he said in a quiet, sardonic tone, sitting at my desk and blazing my electricity away. I happened to get up, and I looked out of the window and noticed the glare below, so I came to see what was afoot. Do you know you've frightened me? I don't like being frightened. I, I hadn't the slightest notion you ever slept here, George feebly stammered. Didn't you know I decided to keep a couple of rooms here for myself? I'd heard something about it, but I didn't know you'd really moved in. I'm, I've been away so much. I've moved in, as you call it, today, yesterday, and a nice night you're giving me. And even supposing I hadn't moved in, what's that got to do with you being here? Give me a cigarette. With hurrying deference, George gave the cigarette and struck a match for it. And as he held the match, he had a near view of Mr. Enright's prosaic, unshaved chin. The house was no longer the haunt of lurking phantoms. It was a common worldly house without any mystery or any menace. George's skin was no longer the field of abnormal phenomena. Dawn was conquering Russell Square. On the other hand, George was no longer a giant of energy initiating out of ample experience of tremendous and superb enterprise. He was suddenly diminished to a boy, or at best, a lad. He really felt that it was ridiculous for him to be sketching and scratching away there in the middle of the night in his dress clothes. Even his overcoat, hat and fancy muffler cast on a chair seemed ridiculous. He was a child pretending to be an adult. He glanced like a child at Mr Enright. He roughened his hair with his hand like a child. He had the most wistful and apologetic air. He said, I just came along here for a bit instead of going to bed. I didn't know it was so late. Do you often just come along here? No, I never did it before, but tonight... What is it you're at? I'd been thinking a bit about that new town hall. What new town hall? You know. Mr Enright did know. But haven't I even yet succeeded in making it clear that this firm is not going in for that particular competition? Mr. Enright's sarcastic and discontented tone challenged George, who stiffened. Oh, I, I know the firm isn't going in for it, but what's the matter with me going in for it? He forced himself to meet Mr. Enright's eyes, but he could not help blushing. He was scarcely out of his articles. He had failed in the final, and he aspired to create the largest English public building of the last half-century. Are you quite mad? Mr. Enright turned away from the desk to the farther window, hiding his countenance. Yes, said George firmly, quite. Mr. Enright, after a pause, came back to the desk. Well, it's something to admit that, he sneered. At any rate, we know where we are. Let's have a look at the horrid mess. He made a number of curt observations as he handled the sheets of sketches. I see you've got that Saracenic touch in again. What's the scale here? 
Is this really a town hall? Are you trying to beat the Temple of Karnak? If that's meant for an ionic capital, no, it's as it would stand it. It's against all the textbooks to have ionic capitals where there's a side view of them. Not that it matters to me. Have you made the slightest attempt to cube it up? You'd never get out of this under half a million, you know. Shaking his head, he retired once more to the window. George began to breathe more freely, as one who has fronted danger and still lives. Mr. Enright addressed the window. It's absolute folly to start on a thing like that before the conditions are out. Absolute folly! Have you done all that tonight? Yes. Well, you've shifted the stuff, but you haven't the slightest notion what accommodation they want. You simply don't know. I know what accommodation they ought to want with 400,000 inhabitants, George retorted pugnaciously. Is it 400,000? Mr. Enright asked with bland innocence. He generally left statistics to his partner. 425. You've looked it up? I have. Minister Enright was now at the desk yet again. There's an idea to it, he said shortly, holding up the principal sheet and blinking. I shall go in for it. The thought swept through George's brain like a fierce flare, lighting it up vividly to its darkest corners, and incidentally producing upon his skin phenomena similar to those produced by uncanny sounds on the staircase. He caught admiration and benevolence in Mr. Enright's voice. He was intensely happy, encouraged and proud. He began to talk eagerly. He babbled, entrusting himself to Mr. Enright's benevolence. Of course, there's the final. If they give six months for the thing, I could easily get through the final before sending in day. I could take a room somewhere. I shouldn't really want any assistance. Clark, I mean. I could do it all myself. He ran on until Mr. Enright stopped him. You could have a room here, upstairs. Could I? But you'd want some help, and you didn't think they'll give six months because they won't. They might give five. That's no good. Why isn't it any good? snapped Mr. Enright. You don't suppose they're going to issue the conditions just yet, do you? Not a day before September, not a day. And you could take it from me. Oh, <laughs> right. But look here, my boy. Let's be clear about one thing. Yes? You're quite mad. They looked at each other. The harmless kind, though, said George confidently, well aware that Mr. Enright doted upon him. In another minute, the principal had gone to bed without having uttered one word as to his health. George had announced that he should tidy the sacred desk before departing. When he had done that, he wrote a letter in pencil. It's the least I can do, he said to himself seriously. He began, Dear Miss Ingram, Dash it, she calls me George, he thought, and tore up the sheet. Dear Lois, I think after what you said, it's only due to you to tell you that I've decided to go in for that competition on my own. Thanks for the tip. Yours, George Cannon. He surveyed the message. That's about right, he murmured. Then he looked at his watch. It showed 3.15, but it had ceased to beat. He added at the foot of the letter, Monday, 3.30am. He stole one of John Orgreave's ready-stamped envelopes. In quitting the house, he inadvertently banged the heavy front door. Do him good, he said, thinking of awakened sleepers. It was now quite light. He dropped the letter into the pillar-box round the corner, and, as soon as he had irretrievably done so, the thought occurred to him, I wish I hadn't put 3.30am, there's something rottenly sentimental about it. The chill, fresh air was bracing him to a more perfect sanity. He raised the collar of his overcoat.
4. At the club on Tuesday morning, Downs brought to his bedside a letter addressed in a large, striking and untidy hand. Not until he had generally examined the letter did he realise that it was from Lois Ingram. He remembered having mentioned to her that he lived at his club, Pickering's, but he laid no stress on the detail, nor had she seemed to notice it, yet she must have noticed it. Dear George, I am so glad. Miss Wheeler is going to her bootmakers in Conduit Street tomorrow afternoon. She's always such a long time there. Come and have tea with me at the new Prosser's in Regent Street, four sharp. I shall have half an hour. L. I. In his heart he pretended to jeer at this letter. He said it was like Lois. She calmly assumed that at a sign from her, he, a busy man, would arrange to be free in the middle of the afternoon. Doubtless the letter was the consequence of putting 3.30am on his own letter. What could a fellow expect? All pretense. In reality the letter flattered and excited him. He thought upon the necktie he would wear. By the same post arrived a small parcel. It contained a ring, a few other bits of jewellery, and all the letters and notes that he'd ever written or scribbled to Marguerite. He did not want the jewellery back. He did not want the letters back. To receive them somehow humiliated him. Surely she might have admitted this nauseous conventionality. She was so exasperatingly conscientious. Her neat, clerk-like calligraphy on the label of the parcel exasperated him. She carefully kept every scrap of a missive from him. He hated to look at the letters. What could he do with them except rip them up? And the miserable trinkets which she had worn which had been part of her. As for him, he had not kept all her letters, not by any means. There might be a few lying about in drawers. He would have to collect them and return them. Odious job. And he could not ask anybody else to do it for him. He was obliged to question Lucas about the Regent Street process, of which, regrettably, he had never heard. He did not, in so many words, request John Orgreave for the favour of an hour off. He was now out of his articles, though still by the force of inertia at the office, and therefore he informed John Orgreave that unless Mr John had any objection, he proposed to take an hour off. Mr Enright was not in. Lucas knew vaguely of the rendezvous, having somewhere met Lorenzin. From the outside, Prosser's was not distinguishable from any other part of Regent Street. But George could not mistake it, because Miss Wheeler's car was drawn up in front of the establishment, and Lois was waiting for him therein. Strange procedure. She smiled, and then frowned, and got out sternly. She said scarcely anything, and he found that he could make only such silly remarks as, I hope I'm not late, am I? The new Prosser's was a grandiose by-product of chocolate. The firm had taken the leading ideas of the chief tea-shop companies catering for the million in hundreds of establishments arranged according to pattern, and elaborated them with what is called in its advertisements cachet. Its prices were not as cheap as those of the popular houses, but they could not be called dear. George and Lois pushed through a crowded lane of chocolate and confectionery, past a staircase which bore a large notice, Please keep to the right. This notice was needed. They came at length to the main hall under a dome, with a gallery between the dome and the ground. The floor was carpeted. The multitudinous small tables had cloths, flowers, silver, and menus knotted with red satin ribbon. The place was full of people, people seated at the tables and people walking about. Above the rail of the gallery could be seen the hats and heads of more people. People were entering all the time and leaving all the time.
scores of waitresses in pale green and white moved to and fro like an alien and mercenary population the heat the stir the hum and the clatter were terrific and from on high descended thin strident music in a rapid and monotonous rhythm no room said george feeling that he had at last got into the true arena of the struggle for life oh yes said lois with superior confidence she bore mercilessly across the floor round the edge of the huge room beneath the gallery were a number of little alcoves framed in fretted moorish arches of white enamelled wood three persons were just emerging from one of these she sprang within and sank into a wicker armchair there is always a table she breathed surveying the whole scene with a smile of conquest george sat down opposite to her with his back to the hall he could survey nothing but lois and the world of the mirror behind her that's one of father's maxims she said what is there is always a table well you know there always is he must be a very wise man he is what's his special line she exclaimed don't you know father hasn't miss wheeler told you or mrs orgreave no but you must know father father's parisian in the sunday journal despite the mention of this ancient and very dignified newspaper george felt a sense of disappointment he had little esteem for journalists whom mr enright was continually scoffing at and whom he imagined to be all poor he conceived mr ingram as perhaps a rich cosmopolitan financier or a rich idler but at any rate rich whatever he might be of course he does lots of other work besides that he writes for the pall mall gazette and the st james's gazette in fact it's his proud boast that he writes for all the gazettes and he's the only man who does that's because he's so liked everybody adores him i adore him myself he's a great pal of mine but he's very strict strict yes she insisted rather defensively why not i should like a strawberry ice and a lemon squash and a millefeuille cake don't be alarmed please i'm a cave woman you've got to get used to it what's a cave woman oh it's something primitive you must come over to paris if father likes you he'll take you to one of the weekly lunches of the anglo-american press circle he always does that when he likes anyone he's the treasurer have you got any milfoy cakes she demanded of the waitress who had come to renew the table and had deposited a basket of various cakes i'm afraid we haven't miss answered the waitress not comprehending the strange word any better than george did bit rowdy isn't it george observed looking round when the waitress had gone lois said with earnestness i simply love these big noisy places they make me feel alive he looked at her she was very well dressed more stylistic than any girl that he could see in the mirror he could not be sure whether or not her yellow eyes had a slight cast if they had it was so slight as to be almost imperceptible there was no trace of diffidence in them they commanded she was not a girl you could masculinely protect on the contrary she would protect not only herself but others haven't you any cream she curtly challenged the waitress arriving with ice lemon squash and george's tea the alien mercenary met her glance inimically for a second and then shutting her lips together walked off with the milk her process the waitresses did not wear caps and were in theory ladies lois would have none of the theory the waitress was ready to die for it and carried it away with her intact george preferred milk to cream but he said nothing yes lois went on you ought to come to paris you have been haven't you i remember you told me we're supposed to go back next week but if irene doesn't go i shan't she frowned 
George said that positively he would come to Paris. When they had fairly begun the rich, barbaric meal, Lois asked abruptly, Why did you write in the middle of the night? Sometimes her voice was veiled. Why did I write in the middle of the night? Because I thought I would. He spoke masterfully. He didn't mean to stand any of her cheek. Oh, she laughed nicely. I didn't mind. I liked it, awfully. It was just the sort of thing I should have done myself. But you might tell me all about it. I think I deserve that much, don't you? Then he told all about it, how he had arranged everything, got a room, meant to have his name painted on the door, meant to make his parents take their holiday on the northeast coast for a change, so that he could study the site, meant to work like a hundred devils, etc. He saw with satisfaction that the arrogant, willful creature was impressed. She said, Now listen to me, you'll win that competition. I shan't, he said, but it's worth trying for the experience, that's what Enright says. She said, I don't care a fig what Enright says. You'll win that competition. I'm always right when I sort of feel, you know. For a moment he believed in the miraculous, inexplicable intuitions of women. Oh, she cried as the invisible orchestra started a new tune. Do you know that? It's the first time I've heard it in London. It's the Mashiche. It's all over Paris. I think it's the most wonderful tune in the world. Her body swayed, her foot tapped. George listened. Yes, it was a maddening tune. It is, he agreed eagerly. She cried, Oh, I love pleasure and success and money, don't you? Her eyes had softened. They were liquid with yearning. But there was something frankly sensual in them. This quality, swiftly revealed, attracted George intensely for an instant. Immediately afterwards, she asked the time and said she was going. I don't keep Irene waiting, she said. Her eyes now had a hard glitter. In full Regent Street, he put the haughty girl into Irene's automobile, which had turned round. He was proud to be seen in the act. He privately enjoyed the glances of common, unsuccessful persons. As he walked away, he smiled to himself to hide from himself his own nervous excitement. She was a handful, she was. Within her, life burned and blazed. He remembered Mr. Prince's remark. He must have made a considerable impression on her, or words to that effect. A startling thought visited him. I shall marry that woman. Then another thought. Not if I know it. I don't like her. I do not like her. I don't like her eyes. She had, however, tremendously intensified in him the desire for success. He hurried off to work. The days passed too slowly, and yet they were too short for his task. He could not wait for the fullness of time. His life had become a breathless race. I shall win. I can't possibly win. The thing's idiotic. I might. Enright's rather struck. Yes, it was Mr. Enright's attitude that inspired him. To have impressed Mr. Enright. By Jove, it was something. End of Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 2